This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. Hey everyone, this is Morgan Lee, the assistant editor at Christianity Today, and you're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes and set aside time to explore the reality behind a major cultural event. And I'm Caitlin Beatty. I'm the print managing editor of Christianity Today. I am Morgan's co-host this week, and we have the pleasure of having with us our guest, Jonathan Brooks. He's the senior pastor of Canaan Community Church on the south side of Chicago. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, how are you, ladies? We're doing excellent. Thanks so much for being with us. Uh, thanks for having me. It's really great to have a fellow Chicagoan here. I'm glad that you were able to join us today. So most controversies, as we know, come with complexity. They come with tension. They come with a lot of fraught opinions. They come sometimes with people even yelling at each other. And every week, we try to acknowledge that there are these tensions and there are these dividing lines and there is polarization but then we're trying to work out as best we can how Christians can respond to this. So one of these issues that I think has increasingly polarized us in many ways are protests. And I'd really like us to talk about all different types of protests this week. I'll get this and get into this a little bit more later. Um, but I'm first wondering if everyone can give me in two sentences or less for a little gut check. 140 characters. You know the drill. About how they feel about the term protest, the word protest, protest in and of themselves. And Caitlin, if you could just <laughs> start that for us. Of course. So my gut check on protest, when I hear that word, I get nervous. I have never participated in a protest. And so I think all of my opinions on protests are mediated by the news. And the feelings seem to be like anger with potential for increasing conflict or pouring fire on a difficult situation. So that's my gut check. Jonathan, you want to go? Sure. Protest for me is uh, directly related to anger and frustration at systems that uh, keep us from what Dr. King called the beloved community. So anytime I think of protest, I think of people standing up for the image of God in another individual or other places being disrespected or disregarded. Every time I hear the word protest, I think what's going on and what's happening. And I get really curious about things that are happening. I am definitely the person that walks over to the protests and starts asking questions. Morgan actually did this like four days ago. So <laughs> she's speaking from experience. <laughs> um, you know how some people will run to fire when they're interested? No, I'm teasing. So anyway... Guys, there's been so many protests in the past year. So we can talk about Black Lives Matter protests that have happened in mm -hmm. Ferguson and Baltimore and Chicago and New York City, um, not to mention the Bay Area. We can talk about protests at the recent Trump rally here in Chicago. Um, we can talk about March for Life that happens on an annual basis in Washington, D.C. We can talk about political protests that we see all over the world, anywhere from the Arab world to there were, there were presidential protests a couple weeks ago in Brazil um, and then others against refugees in Europe. Um, and then, of course, some of the most famous protests that we know of are the Westboro Baptist protests as well. Very um, different kind of protest. <laughs> So my first question for you guys is what gives protests their efficacy? Or in other words, what makes a successful protest? 
So I, I really resonated with what you said, Jonathan, about individuals, a group of individuals standing up to a system that's not working or that has failed them in some way. That's kind of how I would define the point of a protest in a lot of situations. And so it seems like for a protest to be successful, it has to both get the attention of people who are in the system, who have power to change the system, and then affect change, even if the protests are just the starting point of a very long series of changes that have to be rolled out over years and years. Yeah, I I definitely wouldn't disagree with that. I, I, I know that that's a starting point. When you think of the word protest, it is really the idea of I'm, I'm pushing back against some action that I have experienced either individually or we have experienced corporately. And because of that action, there is an equal or opposite reaction that comes from experiencing that. And uh, what I tell people is I'm not sure if I know exactly what the perfect characteristics like of an effective protest would be, but there are some specific things that just based on previous protests and, um, and what we've seen change throughout history through protest that we know to be true. Mm. One thing that I think can make a successful protest is the ability to bring people together and to be able for them to see that other people care about the same issues as they are. In other words, it's a public place for people to publicly recognize that multiple people feel the same way and that it's not just something that's experienced. It's it's not a marginalization or injustice that's being suffered by yourself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It seems like an inherent part of a protest is that it's happening in a very public space, that it's that it's individuals coming out publicly against a particular action or a particular injustice and and that there is really strength and solidarity, solidarity, <laughs> solidarity <laughs> to be drawn from being part of a protest with like-minded people who have experienced similar things as you. I think that's like the the ground level basis is to be able to garner support from people who have shared experience. But also, I believe that everyone who enters into protests also has some hope that there will be some kind of a mobilizing for change, Mm -hmm. right? So when I think about things that actually have worked or that have been effective, um, right, you know that in order to influence like like people who make policy, there needs to be some kind of disruption of a boundary that's been set. So whether that's, you know, blocking off a street, which is going to cause some disruption or, you know, stopping a rally or or even the idea of like breaking into like a store or something like that, like some boundary has to be crossed that gets the attention of a policymaker. Mm. And then, you know, those large, larger scale ones where it's, it's kind of like you're trying to get the attention of the media or make a lot of noise. Those things more about creating community than they are creating change, because what you're trying to do is to show that there is a large group of us who all agree that this is an injustice, which is why violence doesn't really solve anything. Would you think that there's a difference between like a march then and a protest? Because when I was thinking of protest, I, it came to mind just like when they closed off the Magnificent Mile in Chicago on right. Black Friday versus just coming together on a street corner and saying like honk if you agree with this message. Exactly. Exactly. So the boundary there is is like we're stopping people from living life as usual. So on one of the busiest shopping days, we're going to affect the way you shop so that you can see how life 
like a microcosm of how life has been affected by those who've been marginalized by the system. Yeah, it seems like disruption is like a very core part of what a protest like kind of saying, wake up, we're going to make things uncomfortable for you or for this community in order to draw attention to the larger issues. Exactly. How would you guys say that protest organizers and protesters should know when they failed? If no one shows up for your protest, <laughs> like like when there were like five people who protested Beyonce's new album, I would say that was a failed protest. <laughs> That's an interesting perspective, though. I mean, it's really difficult to know when a protest fails, though, because you don't know the long term uh, outcomes of a protest. I mean, I remember there was a protest outside of the White House that only had like five or six people there. But you never know who sees that protest who, how it affects their heartstrings and maybe causes them, someone who does have power to change things, to actually have a change of heart. So just because you don't get numbers necessarily doesn't mean that your protest may fail. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. That's really interesting. Uh, so I'm thinking about this because I have some friends from in the Bay Area who have been telling me about the Black Lives Matter protests that have been taking place out there. And there's been several times where the Black Lives Matter protests have shut down some of the major freeways there. And in my friend's eyes, he was definitely tempted to say, like, well, this just makes me more frustrated with these protesters and make doesn't, you know, make me more sympathetic to their movement. But I almost was like, I'm not sure, actually, in this case, to my friend, if, if you're the intended audience of this protest and right. if they're the, you're the ones that they're trying to get to change on this particular issue, it may be that they have different stakeholders that they're trying to reach. And that is the effective way to reach to raise the attention, to get the media attention that they need to of those more visible people that are in those trenches. Yeah. And it's interesting that you brought up the example, Morgan, of the Westboro Baptist Church protests. And my my first inclination is to say that those have failed to actually put forth the ideas and the beliefs that Westboro Baptist holds. I mean, their tactics are just so outlandish and offensive and harmful to individuals and families that they would find almost no support. And I don't even know that they're trying to like get people on their side. I think they're just trying to stir the pot, you know? And so in that sense, it seems like more than media attention has to be the goal. It has to be like changing um, power structures. And I don't know that that's what Westboro Baptist is even going for. The purpose of the <laughs> protest matters, right? I, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If, if it's not a, 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 a protest wrapped around what we know to be the ethos of God's word, right? If, we, mm -hmm. if it's not around the, the image of God and a person, if it's not around trying to see things, and then if it's not done in a righteous manner, Right, right. How can we expect, you know, success? How can we expect it to be effective when we know that God is the one who kind of leads us in our effectiveness because it's supposed to be a kingdom agenda behind mm -hmm, it? Mm -hmm. This episode is brought to you by Church Law and Tax. Church Law and Tax understands the realities of church work helping thousands of churches stay informed and get equipped with comprehensive resources on legal, tax, financial, and risk management matters. Do you have a question on housing allowance? Need information on selecting church insurance? Looking for insights on what is or isn't unrelated business income? Or how about some guidance on how to properly receive charitable contributions? ChurchLawAndTax.com equips you for success with access to the most respected and knowledgeable attorneys, accountants, financial advisors, and risk managers guiding churches today. 
Get the practical information and timely coverage you need to keep your church up to date and lead your ministry with confidence. Join churchlawandtax.com today. So I'm just going to shift the conversation a little bit. What other types of political actions do you think must happen for social change? Um, And let's limit right now for the sake of this question, let's limit it to the United States. I mean, a lot of us voted yesterday in Illinois. And so there has to be some kind of involvement in the political process by regular citizens. At the same time, it has to be more than voting. You know, it has to be more than checking a box on a ballot. But involvement in local in local politics. I don't think a lot of our readers have a vision of being involved in local politics. It's just like the state, you know, the national level and the individual when in fact, there are other ways to create political change that are at our fingertips in our communities. I I also agree with that. I mean, to me, I call it like, we always want to like quickly jump to how we can protest things that are going wrong or things that we feel have been an offense. But I also think long before we jump to protest, there has to be an active engagement in projects that are more peaceful. So how are you engaging on the other end and trying to create the world that you'd like to see? Mm-hmm. So if you're not engaging in projects that are moving your communities and your cities and your nation towards being more of a beloved community. If you're not engaged in things, then you really shouldn't be jumping out to try to speak out against those things that are are not correct or not right. Mm. So to me, being engaged in the political process is also being part of gardens and a part of uh, after school programs and wanting to be a part of the solution so that you're not just an antagonist against the problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it starts with more positive building shalom type of long-term investments rather than just the display of disagreement or anger. I'm also really curious, what do you guys think as far as the range of political actions that are available to people? Um, It seems to me that not all political actions are are available to everyone um, and that they also they often vary by education level or by race or by class or by style of government that people live under Mm -hmm. Um, and that has a direct relation to people's ability to kind of like channel their concerns and frustrations Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so you're saying a protest might be like the last resort for people who have no other way to be involved in the political process yeah or feel very disenfranchised from it right right well, I think I think that's why some people are so disgusted by the riot, right? Mm. They're disgusted by the riot, and the quickest way to have your protest discredited is to throw a garbage can through a window, right? Mm. Mm-hmm. But even Dr. King told us that the riot is the voice of the unheard. A riot is a last... We've been crying out. We've been telling you. We've been showing you. We've been uh, trying to give you, uh, in a peaceful way, uh, understanding, but... You're not listening to that. Mm-hmm. Right? After Rodney King in L.A., right? Mm-hmm. We we showed our support. We videotaped it. We gave you proof. Mm-hmm. And he went on scot free. After Michael Brown, gun in the street, right? With everybody saying it was done incorrectly. Doesn't matter. Set mm-hmm. free. Laquan McDonald shot 16 times mm-hmm. in the back while on the way. Video released. No indictment. Right, right. right. They were lucky there were no riots because it is as if you're saying we hear you, but we don't care. Yeah. Or we hear you, but can you like tone it down or something? And I think that's really unfortunate. Like 
to not listen to the anger and to justify the anger. Like your anger is justified. I don't know that we have a Christian language to talk about that, at least like among CT readers. But I think that lament that comes out of anger, you know, a godly anger, we need to make be able to make space for that. I I think I think it's unfortunate that that language is not there, because I Mm. think there are times when establishments are disrupted by force. Right. I think we look at Jesus going into the temple. Mm-hmm. Right to to turn over tables and and create a whip out of uh, tree branches and the following sentence after he flips over the money changers tables is not ooh I went overboard it's <laughs> good now there's room for the crippled and the lame so that I can heal them mm-hmm. it's that acknowledgement that unless things get turned over and flipped over and and we get the attention of the establishment we don't make room for the people who need to to get their ears the most. I think there's language there. I just think we want to see Jesus as picking flowers, skipping through gardens. <laughs> we don't want to look at him as an antagonist, as someone who stood for justice as well. By so. the way, Jonathan, great Holy Week tie-in, because that definitely takes place just <laughs> only a couple of days before Jesus is eventually crucified. You like the way I did that, don't you? I yeah, see you. yeah, I see you. Great, great Holy Week plug. <laughs> Last question for you guys. When, in, when would you say that civil disobedience is appropriate? And then I guess if you back up a little bit, how would you guys define civil disobedience? Mm. Oh, I, I I think it's really closely tied to, you know, how we define protests. It's to me, it's a legitimate option for Christians and a very public action that symbolically challenges the state. So people who feel like they can't work within the bounds, within the laws of the state because they're inherently unjust or they're in, they inherently, you know, mar the image of God in a group of people. And so the only option that we have as people who are obedient to God ultimately and not to man is to challenge, to symbolically or publicly challenge those laws. Yeah, that's a great definition. I mean, for me, civil disobedience hinges on action that we know will have a cost. Mm, mm-hmm. It is the refusal to obey a law, the refusal to obey demands, whatever commands the government gives us because it is a reaction to a law or a declaration that we have seen to be unjust. And so we know that there's a cost to it. We enter into the disobedience knowing that there will be repercussions for our action. What I think happens in Christianity often is we want to enter into this type of protest or or disobedience thinking there won't be any resistance or or persecution Mm -hmm. if we read the bible we know is unrealistic anytime there's any kind of action there is an equal and opposite reaction and if there's no reaction it's because we're not taking any action (laughs) you know so we sit and are comfortable and only reason we can be comfortable as christians is because there's no action on our part do you all think that more christians should seriously consider forms of civil disobedience in in the United States, like in the West? Yes. If the law is unjust, we must protect the image of God in every human being above our comforts attached to our constitution. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We must. I would say too, I I would almost say that more privileged Christians should be involved in civil disobedience. There's this tendency for the people that are to ask the people who are most affected by the injustice of the system to then bear the brunt of those costs. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it is appropriate, if the option is appropriate for someone of more resource or more means to pay this type of penalty or stigma or whatever, then I think that would also be appropriate there. Mm-hmm. 
this shifts the the focus of our conversation a little bit. But I do think of people who, who Christians who have demonstrated to the point of being arrested um, in front of like abortion clinics. And there you have an example of people who have power, who have a voice simply on, by the fact that they are alive, seeing themselves as standing up for people who unborn people who do not have a voice, who don't have a choice. Yeah. No, I think that's a great, I think that's a great example. I think it doesn't push the envelope enough, but it's a great example mm. because mm-hmm. the frustration is not that there are people who would protest on behalf of the unborn. It's those who would in the same breath, not stand up for those who are alive and well. And so, you know, um, John Perkins says often, who's uh, one of the founders of Christian Community Development Association, that being pro-life is not the issue. It's that people are not pro-life enough. They're only concerned about the life before it gets here. And and so, like, how do we stand for the image of God in everyone? So that child is born, but then they're born into a situation in which they'll need more support as they get older. And so it's just, you know, it, it's it's pushing Christians to the next level. Okay, mm-hmm. yes. We can be pro-life, but what does that actually mean? Does that mean that I can be pro-life and not involved in the adoption system, right? There's just, there's so much more. There's always more to push in order to get us out of our our space of comfortability. Mm -hmm. Always more to push. So as I wrap this conversation, two things to say. One, the April cover story is going to be about civil disobedience. So for all you listeners out there, we look forward to you comparing our conversation and what's in our cover story and letting us know what you think. And the ways that you can do that are by going on Twitter and following us at CT Podcasts. Or you can also go on Facebook at facebook.com slash CT Podcasts. And now we're going to have time for what we're calling Precious Moments, which is basically the time in the show where we go around and everyone's going to give a shout out to one thing or person that's really giving them joy or making them happy this week. And then that person can tell us how all you listeners can follow them online. Jonathan, do you want to kick that off? I sure can. I sure can. This one's easy for me. Uh, My beautiful wife, Michelle uh, Brooks, is giving me so much joy this week as she just puts up with my nonsense and my crazy schedule. And my beautiful daughters, Jasmine and Jade, for loving daddy, even when I'm not the best daddy I can be. But um, you can follow me easily on Twitter or Instagram and Facebook at Pastor J, P-A-S-T-A-H-J. All right. That's pastor, not pastor. <laughs> Got it. Find me at pastorj.com. Thanks. Want to go? Yeah. This is a weird, precious moment, but I was happy yesterday going to the public library and voting and seeing how many people were there, running into friends at the voting booth, just recognizing that it is a privilege and an important responsibility to participate in these elections. So voting gave me joy. Um, And then, yes, you can follow me as well on Twitter at Caitlin Beatty. You guys can all follow me at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. And if you have questions about what that is for, save them and ask me on the Internet sometime. Also, (laughs) my precious moment for this week it's kind of a cheating one, I guess, because it's still a couple weeks away. But I'm just really excited because the baseball season is like days away. It's like two weeks away. And that pretty much is my favorite time of year all the time. And I cannot wait to listen to a baseball game every day. So, everyone, thank you so much for joining us. Jonathan, it's been great to have you. Um, thank you to all our listeners for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This show is produced by Richard Clark and Cray Alred. And we have special thanks for Kate Shelnut. 
you listeners can subscribe to our show on iTunes and SoundCloud. And if you like the show, please, please, please make sure to rate and review us on iTunes. This will help us a lot, especially as we get the show going. We'll see you all next week. See ya. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.